0: Please listen now to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. This is on your insert, and this is from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Pray together. Our Father in Heaven, it is out of deep gratitude for all you have done for us in your Son, Jesus, that we bring these gifts, these tithes, and these offerings, asking that you would use them in order that your kingdom would be revealed here and throughout the world in word and deed. And Father, as we prepare ourselves to sit beneath your word this morning, we ask that you would work powerfully, and tenderly among us, that you would convict and comfort us. All of us in this room, we are all unique, and some of us are excited to be here, and some of us are wondering why they are here. Um, Some of us are comfortable, and others suffering, some anxious, and others full of hope, some despairing, and others full of doubts. Some, we confess, are confused about what you are doing right now in their lives. And others are blessed to sense your gracious presence in their lives. Though we are all unique, Father, help us to see this morning that we are also all alike. And we are all really in the same condition. That every one of us needs this morning to be reminded that we are indeed far more broken than we know, than we can even imagine about ourselves. But we not only need to be reminded of that, we need to be reminded that you have moved towards the broken in your Son, Jesus. You have moved towards us in Him so that it can be true that we are at the same time more broken than we know and also more loved and more accepted, and more secure than we ever dreamed possible because of what You have done for us in Your Son, Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. The children, uh, ages 3 to 6, are dismissed now for Children's Church so you can make your way to the back of the sanctuary. Well, after being gone for two Sundays. Um, It really is great to be back and great to see you. Um, And we're picking up today in our series uh, through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, right? And I don't know, what a doozy of a place to to jump right back into Ephesians than with this passage in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 13. Um, I mean, I don't know if there's there's a way to start talking about these verses that doesn't feel awkward. Um, you know, it's like, so, um, the devil, um, Satan. Um, you know, I mean, here, you know, here we are. Paul is talking about warfare, right, with the devil, right? You know, and, and all his scheming ways and his dark, ominous, uh, impersonal, evil forces at work in the world. What do you do with all that? Um, well, maybe a good place for us to start is with a quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, Lewis uh, wrote this um, this fictional account. Uh, some of you have read this book before, but he wrote this fictional account of a correspondence between a lesser demon named Wormwood and his mentor, Uncle Screwtape, in a book that's called The Screwtape Letters. And um, in a In a very brief one-page introduction to that book, Lewis writes this. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which humanity can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And then he writes this. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and they hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight right so two errors he's saying right we either disbelieve in the existence of these spiritual beings or we're overly fascinated by them and we attribute far too much to them you know we find them under every rock and behind every bush kind of thing and i think this i think this makes sense why we gravitate towards one extreme or the other this is it. no matter which side we are on we tend to bristle against complexity in the world right see on the one hand you might be entirely dismissive of the spiritual world embracing what you think is a more simple secular view of the world or on the other hand you might be <coughs> excuse me entirely dismissive of human responsibility and find it easier to attribute everything to the spiritual world. Um, but I would argue with you this morning, and I am going to argue with you this morning, that the Bible's view is completely unique. Because the Bible's view embraces complexity. And in the Bible's view, this whole spiritual warfare, it's nuanced, right? It gives you a more complex, a more robust, a fuller view of the world. It rejects both the materialist And the magician. You know, if I haven't lost you yet, because we've already covered a lot of ground this morning, this is what I want you to see. I want you to see how the Bible really threads this needle, right? Threads this needle in its discussion of spiritual warfare. And I want you to see how God is calling you and calling me this morning to embrace God's reality, right? A richer, nuanced, more complex view of reality, so here are the three things I want to address from these four verses this morning, okay? I want us to see together that we do face a terrible enemy. And then second, I want us to notice that this enemy uses a variety of schemes. And then finally, I want us to see that Paul gives us a safe place to stand, okay? So first, a terrible enemy. I mean, the language in this passage, I think, gets gets this across pretty well, Right? The devil, rulers, authorities, right? Cosmic powers, right? Ever present darkness, spiritual forces of evil, right? But I want you to notice something important about these verses. What does a complex, nuanced worldview actually look like? One that's balanced and is not dismissive of one side or the other. Paul writes this in verse 12. He writes this For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now now listen, he is not saying that there is no such thing as evil men or evil women. He is not saying that there's no such thing as evil practices or evil systems or even evil governments, right? In other words, this isn't a denial of the real present and felt injustices of your life. This is not a denial of the real wickedness and abuse and oppression that you see in the world. Paul willingly acknowledges that all over the place, even in Ephesians. But you see, what he is saying is he is saying it's more complex than just that. It's more complex than just evil men or evil women or evil systems or evil governments. Right? See, one scholar puts it like this. He says that Paul is defining a struggle that is, this is his word, supra flesh and blood. In other words, he is saying this spiritual conflict that Paul is describing here, it lies above and behind and underneath, right, the flesh and blood evil that we see in the world. Above, behind, and underneath the wickedness and, and the injustices and so on. A writer by the name of Marva Dawn um, she helpfully pulls together a lot of what the Bible says, about, has to say about the spiritual world and the spiritual warfare. And she talks about how these spiritual powers, these dark forces of evil, are both external and connected to human and social realities. In other words, think about it like this with me. Sex is never just sex. Right. Money is never just money. Political power is never just political power. That's what she's saying. I mean, you think about this. You take money, for example, right? There's a reason that Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money. But money's just pieces of paper, right? Not according to Jesus. According to Jesus, it's also a power. And listen, here's how this works out in your life and how you see that something like money has power, that there are deep, dark forces at work underneath, behind, um, and above this, right? You know, you take your money and you say, well, I want to become a good steward with my money. And so I'm going to be very careful with how I spend my money and I'm not going to become greedy and I'm not going to become materialistic. And that's great. That's good. You should be doing that, right? But here's what's happened. If you've tried that, you've noticed that after a little while, after you have become a good steward, you start realizing, right, that money is now exerting its power in another direction in your life. And it's very, very hard for you to become generous with your money to those in need. Right? There is an unseen power that's external but also connected to the tangible realities in your life and in mind, and they are warring with us all the time. But listen, at the same time, Paul is also saying that this evil, it's not abstract, and it's not mysterious or mystical, right? He is saying that it's personal. We can't get far into this at all, but the Bible says that both men and angels fell, right? There exists a real personal devil and real personal forces of evil that are described there in verse 12. The devil and his legions of fallen angels, right, are powerful forces of evil and darkness, and they are personally opposed to God and to his people. You and I, if we are Christians this morning, we we face a real terrifying and terrible enemy. Now, listen This is a heck of a way to close a letter to your friends, because that's what Ephesians is, right? It's Paul writing to his friends in Ephesus, and he says, finally, lastly, I need to tell you about this, right? And here's Ephesians. It is this right It's this it's taking you through these wonderful, soaring heights of God's redemption of his mysterious and wonderful grace that's broken into this world. Right. I mean, he's he's saying God is bringing reconciliation to all of life through Jesus. Right. Yeah, I mean, he just if you were reading all the way through Ephesians, he just finished painting this beautiful picture of redemption unleashed in marriage and in family and in the workplace. Right. And so you go from the soaring heights like this to this deep darkness in chapter six. Right. I mean, you go from beauty To a blood-soaked battlefield here. And you know what I think Paul is doing for his friends. As he closes this letter. He's saying. I don't want you to be a fool. I don't want you to be caught. Unaware. I want you to open your eyes. To reality. This is no game. He's saying. You have a real personal terrible enemy. In the devil and his forces. A real conflict is being waged right now at this very moment. See, the word wrestle in verse 12, it's actually a Greek word that means like hand-to-hand or toe-to-toe combat. Right? It, it's a close quarters fight, Paul is saying. You're so close you can feel the breath of your enemy on your neck, he is saying. You can swell the, smell the sweat, right? You can hear the groans and grunts. It's hand-to-hand. And Paul is saying, you have to open your eyes to this reality. Look, in in an effort to um, practice restraint, I've decided that I'm going to limit myself to one Lord of the Rings uh, reference a year. So if you can make it through this one, you've got the rest of 2014 covered. You don't have to worry about it. But there is this scene in the books, and... um, and I think the the movie actually does a great job portraying it, if you've seen it. Um, but it's this scene, um, you know, Frodo and his companions, they are on this their quest to destroy this evil ring, and they make their way to the city of Galadhrim, right? And there, they are met by Galadriel, who's played by Kate uh, Blanchett. And at one point, she takes Frodo to the mirror of Galadriel. Right, And it's this magical basin of water. And she tells Frodo, she says, If you look into this basin of water, this mirror will show you. They, she, they will show you things that were, and things that are, and things that yet may be, is what she says. Well, Frodo looked into this mirror, and at first he saw some familiar scenes. But then it says this. Suddenly, the mirror went altogether dark as dark as if a hole had opened up in the world of sight, and Frodo looked into emptiness. In the black abyss there appeared a single eye that slowly grew until it filled nearly all the mirror. The eye was rimmed with fire, but was itself glazed, yellow as a cat's watchful intent, and the black slit of its pupil opened on a pit, a window into nothing. And then we're told that the eye... Began to rove, searching this way and that. And Frodo knew with certainty and horror that among the many things that this eye sought, he himself was one. You see, his eyes were opened to reality, right? His, to his real personal enemy, the enemy that was always unseen but always watching, right? The enemy that was supra flesh and blood, the enemy that was above, behind, and underneath all of the evil in Middle Earth, right? Lord of the Rings. That, that's the first thing you need to see about this passage is that Paul is endeavoring to get this across in these verses. Open your eyes, open your eyes to your terrible enemy. Don't go, and, and listen, don't go looking For paranormal kind of stuff, right? You know, the movies like Exorcist or whatever, you know, uh, head spinning and projectile vomit. Don't go looking for that stuff. Go looking at your view of sex. Go looking at your money. Go looking at power and status and achievement. Because connected to those human realities are these dark spiritual forces. Okay, now stay with me, and if you're visiting this morning, this is an unusual sermon or topic for us to be handling, um, and it's stretching us a bit. But second, I want us to consider a variety of schemes. The devil, we are told, right, employs a variety of schemes. Verse 12, able to stand against the schemes or, or strategies, you might translate it, uh, of the devil. And however you translate it, schemes or strategies or methods even, it's plural, Okay? Right, this, The same thing is said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul, Paul writes there, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes, plural. Now, in order to understand this vari- the variety of schemes here, <clears throat> it's worth noting that Paul refers not to Satan, but to the devil, right? That Greek word is diabolos, right? And it means liar or slanderer. To know his schemes, you need to understand that he is a liar and a slanderer, right? Jesus said in John chapter 8 about the devil, When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And that should help us in understanding his schemes. Not, Not that I want to give you advice on how to tell a good lie, but I think we've all lied enough, probably, to know that good lies are not complete fabrications, right? The best lies are a twist, right? A spin, a slant of the truth, right? Just enough truth in it to make it believable. And this is what I want you to think about here as we get into this. How the devil twists the truth and he whispers his lies to you in a variety of ways. You know, if you do any uh, reading on this passage, you are likely to come across two names. A guy named William Grenal and a guy named Thomas Brooks. They were both English Puritans, and they both wrote very helpful books about this passage and about spiritual warfare. And so, in preparing for this, this morning, I read Thomas Brooks' book. And it's <coughs> excuse me, let me get it. <coughs> See, I'm <coughs> gone for two weeks, and I can't, you know, I've lost my practice. Um, in Cottonmouth. Um, but uh, his book, the title of his book, is Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices or Schemes. And, you know, the reason I read Brooke's book was because it was 200 pages, and Grenall's book is 1,200 pages. So the decision pretty much made itself. But, um, you know, I definitely recommend that book to you. It, it is by far one of the most helpful, practical, spiritual books I've ever read. Um, and I've read a lot of books. It's it's a very, very good book for you to pick up, even if the old English used is a little difficult to get over. But... The book is basically organized like this. In it, he lists a multitude of Satan's lies that he will tempt or accuse you with, right? And then under each of those lies, he gives four to five remedies, right? Hence the title, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, which is basically truth aimed at those lies, uh, to defeat those lies. And I want to give you a few examples of these lies, but first I want you to listen to what Brooks writes. Uh, At the beginning of his book, he writes this. Whatever sin the heart of man is most prone to, that the devil will help forward. Now, stop there and appreciate the nuance, the complexity, right? Yes, the devil is a real terrible enemy, but his lies are not spent upon blank innocent canvas, right? See, the devil doesn't make a good person bad, right? You can't say the devil made me do it, in other words, right? What the devil does is he takes a broken person, he takes a flawed person, and he makes them far worse, is what Brooks is saying. He comes and he stirs up and he aggravates the evil that is already present in your heart and mind. So listen briefly as he goes on to give examples. He says, whatever sin the heart of man is most prone to, that the devil will help forward. If David is proud of his people, Satan will provoke him to number them, that he may be yet prouder. If Peter is slavishly fearful, Satan will put him upon the rebuking and denying of Christ to save his own skin. If Judas will be a traitor, Satan will quickly enter into his heart and make him sell his master for money which some heathens would never have done. If Ananias will lie for advantage, Satan will fill his heart that he may lie with a witness to the Holy Spirit. Satan loves to sail with the wind and to suit men's temptations to their conditions and inclinations. If they be in prosperity, he will tempt them to deny God. If they be in adversity, he will tempt them to distrust God. If their conscience be tender, he will tempt to scrupulosity. If bold-spirited, spirit, he, spirited, he will tempt to presumption. If timorous, to desperation. If flexible, to inconstancy. And he goes on forever. But listen, here, here's what I'm saying. You, you not only need to know your enemy, you need to know your own heart. Because the devil is not working with a blank canvas in my heart or in yours. He loves to sail with the wind of our hearts. Now it's probably helpful as we talk about this to categorize the devil's schemes in some way. And maybe a good way to categorize it is to talk about lie, his lies of temptation and his lies of accusation. All right? Listen to just a few uh, of these examples that Brooke gives. These are lies of temptation that he talks about, a twisting of the truth. He says scheme number 1 is to present the bait and hide the hook. Right? In other words, to show you the pleasure and the sweetness and the delight of sin and to hide its bitter emptiness and its terrible slavery. Another one he mentions is by causing Christians to compare themselves to others who they think are worse, right? Yes, but at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I'm just a little proud, a little deceptive, a little lustful in comparison. Another scheme of comparison Think about this one. Getting you to compare one part of your life to another part of your life. Here's how that works. Look at all the good things I'm doing with my life. I mean, it's okay if I embrace this one vice. Everybody's got to have some vices, right? On and on he goes and gives dozens of these. But here's the other heading. Satan also attacks with accusations. Brooks says that one scheme here is to cause Christians... To mind their sins more than their Savior. To so beat you down with shame and insecurity and guilt, right? That you don't look up to see the remedy that has been given to you in Jesus upon the cross. Another scheme, how about this? By working the soul to make false inferences from the cross-actings of providence. It's a little old English there, but... Uh, What he's saying there is he's saying when it doesn't seem that your prayers are being heard, right? When your desires in life have been frustrated, and when you are experiencing more tears and more pain than you are smiles and hope, that's when you begin to question whether God really loves you and means good for you. Last one. He gives many more. But but he says, by reminding Christians of frequent relapses into sin they already repented of and prayed against. In other words, he comes and he says, again, what is wrong with you? You must not be loved by God. You must not have really repented because here you are again in the same sin. You should be over that struggle by now. Again, that's just a taste of his work. But you see the lies. It is a subtle but definite twisting and spinning and slanting of the truth. Do you know your enemy? But also, do you know yourself? And are you aware of the schemes that the devil would use against you? Because you're different than everybody else in this room. And he attacks you and he attacks me in different ways with his lies. He sails with the wind of our hearts what we are prone to to entice us to what only leads to death and to accuse us, and to rob us of the joy and the surety of our salvation in Jesus. Don't be unaware, Paul is saying, of the variety of schemes the devil will use on you. All right, last point here, um, and we'll go quickly. I I don't know where you are at this point. I'm looking out there trying to gauge, but maybe you're freaked out, maybe you're overwhelmed, uh, maybe you just wish I would stop reading Puritans during the week, I don't know, but... You know, recognize it or not. You know, recognize the spiritual world or not. I mean, it's like gravity. You can choose to believe Paul or not, right? But it will still bite you and break you. It's real, right? You have a terrible enemy, an enemy who, just as he did in the first garden, is constantly whispering lies into your ear. And maybe and maybe some of you are aware of the lies that you buy into again and again and again. But what are we to do? That's where I want to go with in this last point. Is there any hope? Paul, in this last point, I want to say to you, gives us a place to stand. A sure place, a safe place to stand. Right out of the gate in verse 10, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Right? Not in your own strength, Paul is saying, but in God's strength. Then in verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God. In verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. He doesn't say, go get your armor. He is saying, stand in God's armor. What you need is God's armor, Paul is saying, right? In God's strength. And, you know, I should say this, I know that these A lot of stuff in these verses sounds strange to our modern ears, right? But hopefully you can see and get a sense of Paul's extreme confidence here. Even as he's describing our terrible and terrifying enemy, right? And his vicious lies and attacks. He is not a defeatist at all, right? He doesn't say to you, you might be able to stand in God's armor. He says to you and me, you will stand unshakable, and unmovable in God's armor. So what is God's armor here? Well, <clears throat> you're going to have to come back next week um, for part two and a fuller explanation of this. But the armor, according to Paul, is gospel armor. I'm going to explain that next week. The truth of the gospel, all the benefits of redemption that are ours in Jesus. You will stand against Satan's temptation against his accusations, you will stand against his whispered lies in your life as you stand in the truth of the gospel. Again, more next week. But Paul is saying that you and I, we have to learn how to work the truth of the gospel deep down into our hearts if we are going to stand firm against the devil's lies. You know, there are two, um, there are two gardens That are mentioned in the Bible. Um, In the first garden. God told Adam and Eve. Paraphrase. Obey me about this tree. And you will live forever. Obey me about this tree. And life will flourish for you. In paradise forever. But in that first garden. The devil came. The serpent came. right, And he whispered into Eve's ear. Look at the pleasure. Look at the sweetness. God's holding out on you, right? You can't really trust Him. You know what the devil was doing, right? He was showing the bait and hiding the hook. And you know the story. When they failed to obey God about that tree in that garden, right? They plunged the whole world into sin ruin and misery, and death came and life no longer flourished, right? And life itself was unraveling and coming undone. But the story of the Bible isn't just about that garden, thankfully. It's also about another garden. And in this second garden that all of the gospel writers mentioned, the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember how Jesus went into that garden and how he went into that garden the night before his crucifixion to pray in the garden, and he took with him his disciples who kept falling asleep on him, right? And what did he say to them? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I mean, there was temptation for Jesus in that garden. There was a whisper in his ear. Is there any other way? Is there any other way to do this? A way to hold on to my glory without the suffering and the death of the cross? He was asking his father. And you and I know what Jesus' father told him in that garden. He said to his son in that garden, You obey me. Obey me about this tree, this cross. And I will crush you. My justice will fall on you. You will embrace the deep darkness. On that cross. And you know what the Bible says. He did it. He obeyed his father and he was crushed. He obeyed in your place and mine. He climbed that tree. That rugged cross. And he was crushed. In your place and in mine. How are you ever going to deal with the temptation that's in your life? That sneaking suspicion that God is holding out on you, that He's keeping you from real sweetness, from real pleasure and real delight. That suspicion that God is not good to you. Or that God is not enough to satisfy the hunger of your heart. You you deal with that temptation by looking at the cross and realizing God held nothing back. Not even his own son. Is he good? While we were still his enemies, he sent Jesus to die for us. Is he enough to satisfy you? Your, your heart hungers most desperately to be loved and delighted in. He knows you inside and out to the very bottom of your soul and he loved you this much that he climbed that tree to die in your place. How are you ever going to deal with the accusations in your life, right? Accusations that you've now failed one too many times. Accusations that God must not love you because of the hardship you are facing right now. Accusations in your life that God must have abandoned you now. You take those accusations, Paul is saying, and you throw them at the foot of the cross. Because the cross says, Jesus died for all of your sins, past present, and future. The sins of today and the sins of tomorrow. The cross says that in this life, you can only ever feel forsaken, but never be forsaken. Because Jesus was forsaken in your place. He traded places with you. Just real quick, um, make this a little bit concrete. Three days ago, I was talking to someone, and this person with real sobs and tears, right, was explaining to me, I know I deserve help. And they were explaining how scared they were to know what they deserved, right? And so I listened to that person as those tears came out streaming from their eyes, right? But when it came, you know... At a point, it was time for me to respond. And um, I could not help but speak with a smile on my face. Because, because look, I'm able in that moment to say, of course that's true. You deserve hell, and I deserve hell. Absolutely. But this is why the gospel is called good news. Jesus came and he took hell for you. He got what you and I deserve, right? And we have what only He deserves. The wonderful, beaming smile and love of our Father in Heaven forever. And and here's what was happening in that conversation. I was saying to that person, stand right here. Stand in the armor of God. Stand in the grace of Jesus. And if you stand here, you can know that the fiery darts of accusations will never land on you. And the only reason is this. Because the sword of God's flaming justice fell upon His own Son. And when He died, holiness and mercy met. Righteousness and grace kissed and set you free forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word given to us, even for these hard passages, these unusual passages that we don't talk about often, but we thank you for men like the Apostle Paul who wrote for us and described for us the real world. A world that is complex, a world in which a world that's porous, a world in which you have entered in by Your own Son to defeat our greatest enemy, the devil, and crush his head. Father, we pray that we ourselves would be aware that our eyes would be opened to our terrible enemy, that we would be wise, and that we would know our own hearts, and we would know and look for the schemes of the devil. But we also pray above all of this, that You would help us to stand in the grace of the Gospel. Plant our feet upon the cross we pray. Upon the One who loved us and came to die for us and who has now been raised to Your right hand and is even now interceding for us in our conflict. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond to God's Word together. We'll stand to sing together, A Wonderful Savior is Jesus, my